Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello and welcome to this special Word in Your Ear I'm David Hepworth, and here at the other end of this two tin cans and a piece of string arrangement is Mark Ellen. Hello, Mark. Hello, Dave. Yes, across London. I'm afraid to say I have a bloke next door tapping away at a, at a conservatory. So uh, you may hear extraneous noise and uh, just ignore. We'll try and listen around that. We thought it was worth uh, just recording a bit of a special short word in your ear. A, because we haven't been in touch for a little while, uh, but B, because on Sunday night, Mark and I went to see something that you don't see and hear every day, which we just thought was uh, worth talking about because we thought other people might be interested in the things that were interesting us. So, Mark, explain to the listeners what it was well, that we went to what see. what it was, there's a, there's a Dutch group called the Analogues, which I'm sure anybody listening would have heard of, actually, and they're... they're absolutely fantastic they are not i mean they're a tribute group to the beatles in the sense that they they very very faithfully reproduce the beatles music and they work from uh, the time the beatles stopped performing live so they've worked out how to play the whole of revolver as a kind of song suite and sergeant pepper and the white album and magical mystery tour and um and obviously abbey road and let it be and they, but they don't try and look like the Beatles. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no wigs or um, or costumes, or there's no kind of scouse, uh, embarrassing kind of intersong banter. They're simply, um, you know, absolutely enthralled to the sound that the Beatles made, the songs that they wrote, and so they've worked out how to play these songs live. There's five of them, with a little string section and with a little horn section and two other additional musicians, and they re- replicate as perfectly as they possibly can the sound of hearing the beatles play that record live and as i said they they don't they don't impersonate them vocally they're not they're not putting on a paul voice or putting on a john voice you know they're singing in their own voices but it so happens that their voices sound extraordinarily like the beatles so that's broadly the situation we saw them in studio one of abbey road playing the abbey road album which of course they were just as thrilled as anybody else to be there that's the lovely thing about they're kind of amateurs you know they're not the 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 drummer uh, a guy called fred gearing is a retired business executive uh, the guy who's the producer and and arranger really uh, bart van poppel is an advertising company 
poser. You know, they're, they're, these guys are just, they're, they're doing it for the love of it. You know, there's, there's no suggestion anywhere that they would like to have been rock stars themselves. So let's just take people through how the evening worked, because they'd taken Abbey Road, as you say, Studio One, for the whole of Sunday, uh, and they were doing three um, performances of Abbey Road with three separate audiences. And, of course, they were recording these, uh, which they'll subsequently put out on a live album of some kind, you know, which will well, be I think- Abbey Road from Abbey Road for the first time, I suppose. They're doing it for a, uh, for a documentary for Dutch television, too. I mean, they're huge in Holland, and they're, they're getting very big all over the place. I mean, they command vast uh, audiences in, in, in big uh, concert halls, not, not surprisingly. But they were thrilled to be in Studio One because that was, of course, where all the strings for All You Need Is Love was recorded. I think Hello Goodbye was recorded there. Day in the Life was recorded there. Um, so, you know, that was a, a pretty pretty astonishing place to be to be performing this stuff. So it started, the evening started with uh, a, a friend of the, of the, of the podcast, uh, uh, Mark Lewison, uh, Beatles historian, who, who just gave a little bit of context about the recording of Abbey Road. Which, and, of course, he made the point that so many people... Uh, don't realize which is of course that abbey road was the beatles last album because the the record that subsequently came out as let it be they'd actually started making before abbey road and then kind of shelved it or couldn't quite decide what to do with it there was talk of the film talk of a tv special meanwhile they said Let's just go and do a record pretty much in the old-fashioned way. So they got in touch with, with George Martin and said, you can kind of, we'd like you to come back. And this was very definitely you know, their idea of to kind of resume what they've been doing with, with I suppose, Sergeant Pepper or Revolver, those kind of records. So it's, it's a unique place in, in the Beatles story because uh, it shows how they were capable of putting together a remarkable piece of work, even though... You know, personal relations between them probably weren't as as healthy as they had been. And in the case of John, he was particularly, he was probably just looking for a way out. He was thinking this is going to be the last time. But they did this after Let It Be. So this was the last word. And, uh, you know, we're now approaching the time where roughly 50 years ago, they started working on Abbey Road. And they, they only started with three of them, didn't they, Mark? Because John was, had been injured in a... In a major... John, John had been injured in a car crash. Yeah, I, I, I love that point that John Lewis... Uh, sorry, that Mark Lewis made about uh, everyone thinks that, you know, this is the 50th anniversary of the Beatles splitting up. And, in fact, John Lennon left the group, in fact, I think in August 1969. So so uh, what we're really celebrating now is, is the 50th anniversary of a press release yeah. <laughs> that they've got. But, yeah, John Lennon had a car crash with Yoko and I think uh, Yoko's daughter and I think Sean in Scotland. And uh, so for the first three weeks, there were only three of them recording. And then when Lennon arrived, this just to add to all the all the friction and all the grief and all the legal problems they'd had and the interpersonal relationships that were so frayed. He then arrived with Yoko Ono, Yoko ono and had a hospital bed built into the studio so that she could come and lie in the car and watch them record which I'm sure must have made life uh, even more complicated. And I do think it's fantastic that with even in the middle of all that misery and that friction and the, the lawsuits going on, that they produce this incredibly collaborative work, you know, that they're, they're, they're all there trying to make the best of each other's material. And it's so buoyant and it's so uh, joyous as well, you know, and it's uh, unlike some of the colder and harder and harsher stuff on things like the White House. 
So oh, let, it's let's amazing. Great, great. Let's go through the experience of, of hearing it, uh, Abbey Road, relived, as the analogues call it. You know, so we were very fortunate. We got on the front row, didn't we? We were front row and centre in front of this massive array of equipment. I suppose you, as an old kind of muso, were, were looking at the calibre of, of kit that was on display, were you? Well, th- I thought that was quite interesting that they've sourced and probably bought at huge expense, the original or contemporary um, instruments. You know, they're using, uh, there's uh, two or three tracks on the record using Moog synthesizer, and they've got a 1969 Moog synthesizer. They've got the Rickenbacker basses. They've got those beautiful Epiphone guitars. So everything, the, the Hammond organ, the, the electric um, uh, harpsichord, everything which appears on, on Big Cars, everything was absolutely authentic. And so the tone, the tones and the sound were completely perfect. Yeah, it was a real kind of, of uh, orgiastic experience for anybody who's remotely interested in equipment, but uh, yeah, and they and they played it all in sequence, just came on. And another thing that struck me actually during the the, the show was that mostly concerts, if you like, performances are designed. The setlist is designed for the rise and fall of the kind of momentum of a of a performance. You know, you you build to a certain intensity throughout. But this wasn't. This is a record. So they're playing it in the order in which the record was made. It's a completely different thing. So I, I looked at each track as being a, uh, you know, there isn't much, there isn't much connection between what, you know, Maxwell's Silver Hammer and Oh Darling and that and Octopus's Garden, which you probably wouldn't do live. But you, I kind of saw, saw them all as kind of a self-contained mini performances, if you like, but within a logical sequence that you've heard the record so many times that you ex- you know exactly what's coming. It was and a, also very moving. I thought it was very moving, actually, because it, you think, how many times did you sit down and listen to this record? And you tended to listen to it in its entirety. I'm sure you did, too. You didn't just put it on with a few mates and say, let's play so-and-so track. You would listen to the whole thing very irreverentially. So it was, it's so familiar. Yeah, so they, it was a very different vibe, wasn't it, when they came on? There wasn't the normal kind of whooping and kind of hello London and trying to get you excited or anything like that. Then you knew what they were going to do and they knew what they were going to do, you know. So it starts off with Come Together and so obviously. And so, you know, within 15 seconds, you're sort of deciding how comfortable you are with the sound, you know. It's very tense, isn't it, that bit right at the beginning where you, where you decide, oh, my God, yes, it does sound like it. I thought exactly the same. It's a bit like watching a biopic. And you watch a biopic, you've got about 30 seconds to decide whether you buy the idea that yeah. the people acting the part of John Lennon and Paul McCartney and Nowhere Man or whatever it is are actually going to convince you, you know. But I thought that, I, no, I completely. And it, it struck me when they came on that it, it's now like a form of kind of classical music. Um, that, that I think we're going to get more and more of this, that people are going to take suites of songs like this and they're simply going to go in and perform them, you know, in the same way that the LSO or the, um, the Berlin Philharmonic will perform, I don't know, Mendelssohn's E minor violin, violin concerto or whatever. It's a piece of music that you can now put on as a performance. So they come on a bit like members of an orchestra, really. As you say, no kind of waving at the crowd or it's us again, you know. They're just technicians, and they kind of, and they felt quite amateurish. I like that. They felt as if they were members of the audience. That you just had to be terribly good at playing musical instruments. The, got up there. the thing I, that struck me about the demeanour all the way through the performance was they were quite modest, and so when Incredible. the audience were applauding, obviously, 
there was a sense in which they thought, well, you're applauding the Beatles. You're not really yeah. applauding. We're, we're just here. We're here to kind of reproduce that yeah, sound. Yeah, well, but, yeah. but that sound was invented by those guys, you know, who normally yeah. they have a photograph of them behind them as, as they play, you know. But, but come together. You know, my, my first thought was, uh, you know, come together on the record's got no ending, has it? It, it fades. That's right, and so they had to end it. They had to they? end it without yeah. without making it seem like too much of a departure or, or too much of an invention of their own. And then, of course, they go pretty much straight into into something where they have the, the enormous value of, as you said, there's a string section, isn't there? There's a yeah. small string section on there. So, And uh, at no point, the thing that struck me was um, was the power of the little kind of filler elements of the of the kind of the the power of the backing vocals the power of the bits of strings the you know because you're so used to you go to concerts being and you've got these records inside you you know they're hard they're imprinted on you these records because you've heard them so many times and you're so used to having to kind of compensate for things that will be missing in the live version that were there on the record. Well, of course, on this occasion, you didn't have to do that at all, did you? No, no, it's so faithfully done. It's so every faithfully done. Every single phrase, every single phrase, every single... Cause, because without that, it isn't convincing. And, and it's so familiar to us that you'd miss it immediately if it wasn't there. We'll come on to some details about this later on and things like polythene Pam, you know, which is absolutely incredible. It is extraordinary. But, uh, I tell you yeah, that, but the, the thing that struck me too is that the bass and drums, the bass and drums on come together. I, I, I've told you before. I was once in Abbey Road interviewing George and Giles Martin, and they played me just the bass and drums from Come Together and something, uh, and turned down all the other uh, channels. And you cannot believe the level of creativity and invention and energy, and it's just that's so complicated and so extraordinary those parts. And something is, I mean, it's something is an amazing, a very interesting song for a Harrison song too, because he was actually. He's not in, 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 in character, but in his songwriting, he's very bitter, and very droll and very cynical a lot of the time. Taxman, Piggies, um, Don't Bother Me, Northern Song. You know, they were quite, they're quite dry, actually. Whereas something is just an absolutely beautiful love song, isn't it? It's gorgeous. It's, it, the other thing that struck me, and it, it, it's a bit similar to when we went to that playback of the remastered Sergeant Pepper. When you hear these things played loud... The first thing that strikes you again and again is, my God, what a what a rhythm section the Beatles Incredible. were, uh, and of course the, the analogs kind of pay tribute to this, don't they? Really, because you you are aware during something of how Ringo's contribution to that record is absolutely extraordinary. You it's, know, it's utterly extraordinary. It gives it gives that. it that gravitas. You know, yeah, that there was so much of a part of its appeal, you know. Uh, so they, 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 it starts with come together and something, obviously, and then you think, well, obviously they're going to play Maxwell's Silver Hammer, you know. And you're thinking, well, what will they do about the Silver Hammer? And then suddenly, one of the members of the group appears from the back, goes around the back, and wheels out a gigantic anvil with a with, with a hammer on it. 
the top, but in a very kind of amusing way. Not a kind of uh, oh look at me, I'm bringing out an anvil. Just kind of whoop, just don't want to bash it into the side there. Just bring it on. Just very very kind of business like. Brought it on. It was just marvelous, wasn't it? Just for those little taps at the end of each uh, line of chorus. And I ca- I was looking at him thinking he's going to miss one, and he didn't. Yeah. Of course, he didn't miss it at all. He knew yeah. absolutely what he was doing. And uh, you know the the level of just simple rehearsal that must go into this is absolutely startling because, as we said, there's there's five main musicians, but there's loads of other people coming on and off just to do tiny things, add bits of percussion, bits of backing vocal, double up on a keyboard or whatever. And there's and it's beautiful because it's done with no fuss, isn't it? You know, there's, there's no not. hurry or anything like that. Yeah. You think, oh, the guy, they will turn up and the, somebody will be there just to supply that hand clap that, you know, that we, we're all expecting on one particular song. But Maxwell Simple Hammer, he came on slowly with the, with the anvil as they were already playing it. Weren't they were they? already you know. playing. So you, you looked up to the comedy. side and there he was. And, uh, Cause it, and it, helped, it helped with the song too, because you know, I, you know, a lot of people, myself included, actually, was finding it a bit of an intrusion, really. But somehow it really worked. Oh, it so really worked. Kind of, this bit of kind of music hall levity suddenly appeared. It's a kind of mood enhancer. It just changes the gear, and it's just lovely to see people do it again. You're trying to think how can they how can they reproduce use this in its authentic original form and they do it's completely convincing it's fantastic and then of course it's uh, it's oh darling where a singer just comes on to sing that one song doesn't he why do you think that well was? they brought they brought him on i mean i think partly because uh, unless you're paul mccartney yourself who uh, of course uh, famously recorded i'm down on the same day that he recorded yesterday he could make those kind of extraordinary um you know gear shifts and then a rock and roll screamer he can make those kind of effortlessly he had all these different gears and he could use them in the space of a quarter of an hour but i'm not sure that you could sing oh darling without having really warmed up for yeah. it you know and the guy who sang diedrich i think his name is the guy who was singing who looks a bit like sting actually who's singing the um uh the, the 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 song before the maxwell silver hammer I, I just think you know he had quite a soft voice and obviously couldn't manage that so they brought on this mate this who was fantastic he was fabulous nero college that and he was really, really fantastic. It's a brilliant song. It's a, it's a really over-the-top performance, isn't it? You think on the record, he's absolutely screaming it, you know. It was terrific. So uh, that was incredibly convincing. And then Octopus's Garden. What do you think of that? Well, again, it struck me that Octopus's Garden is about I think it's about the level of collaboration because Ringo would have come back from his holiday in Greece whenever it was. I think it was the year before when someone had told him about it. I think it was Sardinia. Uh, or Sardinia, that's if we're right. Get into Peter Sellers' yacht or something. <laughs> I that's think right. It was. It was. <laughs> I think it was Peter Sellers' yacht, and he came back, and um, you know, someone had explained how octopuses built gardens. He thought that's a charming idea. I write a song, so he writes a song in C, A minor, F, and G. I mean, the most basic chords. And you think when he played that to the Beatles, you know, you wonder how probably the, the lyric is not that particularly fantastic, you know. And yet, the the what makes it is the backing vocals. Yeah. You know, the backing vocals that love. Eyes beneath the ocean waves. All those beautiful little bits that they put in there. Little extra textures. And there's two types of vocals. There's the ah, oohs, and then there's the ones that are singing words, which, which the group, the analogue, split up and had two guys just singing the background ahs and oohs, you know. And um, I thought that was really interesting, you know. And you, you remember there's a bit in um, Ian MacDonald's Revolution in the Head where he talks about, you know, up until really almost the very end, that, that the, the, the Beatles were kind of... Re- 
realized the supernatural collaborative magic that they had between them and valued it immensely. And they also were aware that there were only four people on God's earth who knew what it was like to be a member of the Beatles. And so that kind of closeness and that fondness and that sense of wanting to collaborate is so obvious. And they've taken a very, very average song and made it absolutely beautiful, you know, by, by just working it up and adding to it and adding to it and saying, what else, what other colours and textures can we put in? I thought that was just, it just reminds you of what a, what a kind of warm hearted unit they were even right at the very end you know when they when they must have known that it was pretty much all over astonishing so then i want you she's so have you which was a kind of turning point in this in this whole performance wasn't it this the john lennon song which is in seemingly out of character with the rest of the record yeah it is really they brought another guy there a guy called uh, i think it's called jan van der meer if that's how to pronounce it who um, who sang the lead uh, vocal while simultaneously playing the uh, unison guitar part very difficult and the three other guitars all played the the the, the chords you know so it, it had a huge intensity which i imagine must have been triple tracked on the record you know but um yeah it's not really like it at all it's just in different sequences it changes rhythm and it's uh i don't know what it's like really it's almost like a kind of form of progressive rock or something it doesn't it's not really a song song is it um, but the other thing is it, it builds, it yeah. builds, builds an intensity. And on the record, you hear that. Well, it's like almost like a whistling sound, like a wind in the background kind of builds up. And they did that brilliantly. And as you said, they uh, d- 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 relate what you told me, which I didn't know about the, the ending of the song and the tape. Oh, well, the, the, yeah, Alan Parsons, who was a tape op on on Abbey Road, he told me that, that you know, that he, he, John Lennon just decided it was going to just, finish you know and he didn't want he didn't want a neat edit or anything he just said he, he was standing there with parsons one day he just said cut it there get scissors cut it there and so Alan parsons what like there he said yeah just anywhere you know so he cut it you know and that's why it finishes like you know you've been thrown off a cliff uh, at the end of at the end of of the first side, uh, and it was it was kind of equally dramatic point in the uh, in the performance the other night, and I think what they did say in Dutch, so I couldn't possibly translate. I think they pretty much said, "Now we'll turn over the record," didn't they? Before That's right. Before they went to the the next song, which of course the first uh, first song on the second side, which is "Here Comes the Sun." Which is, I was boring you uh, with on the way home, Mark. Not it, remotely boring. Is the Beatles' most popular song on Spotify? Because I always assumed that the most popular song, the most streamed song of anybody, any artist on Spotify, would be their biggest hit record. Well, Rob Fitzpatrick, who used to work for The Word and now works for Spotify, he pointed out to me that this is not always the case and that the Beatles are a classic case of it not always been the case. And so I think if you go and look on Spotify, Here Comes the Sun, last time I looked, it had something like 300 million streams, which was almost twice as many as whatever came next, which I think might have been Hey Jude, I'm not, I'm not sure, or Let and It the and the reason for that is, is, is you were saying, was, was that people are, are, com- are compiling, because that's how you use Spotify, compiling playlists. So when it comes to summer, people put their playlists together for their trip to the festival, their road trip, their, their garden party or whatever it is, you know. And um, 
and it always choose here comes the sun here comes so, the sun isn't that so think of the money that must be still generating <laughs> for them it's absolutely astonishing isn't it but a lovely performance absolutely gorgeous you know the guy uh, who's on the far right now what was his name jack bico amazing guy looked like a combination of george harrison and um, neil finn from crowded house uh played the the lovely old guitar part on that just gorgeous uh, and um, yeah, it's just a what a what a what a fabulous song. It's astonishing, isn't it? And then and then they're moving to because and they're starting to get towards get towards the medley, which of course the audience is everybody's thinking about this, aren't they? How are they going to do? How are they going to do it? How are they going to do the medley? Because I remember hearing that at the time, and or rather after when Let It Be came out, and thinking that was this a, a, a extraordinary compensation for some things on Let It Be? Because Let It Be has some low points, you know, dig a pony, dig it. I mean, they were they're almost not meant to be put out. They were just things they were trying out, and that was all there was in the can, so they released it. But but you think that John Lennon came back and wrote Because with those extraordinary three-part harmonies. It, it is absolutely extraordinary. And and, uh, and of course they're up to it because they've got all these singers on the stage, you know. And you realise how so much of the time you go to gigs, and so many gigs are let down by the lack of quality in the backing vocals. Yeah, you know, there there always be somebody who's just not quite up to it. And Whereas once those guys this, really they, yeah. are up to it. Oh yeah, they chose they chose the the the, the drummer and the bassist, and. Uh, uh, and the guy Diedrich, who's playing uh, the, the, the harmonium and keyboards and guitars on the left. I mean, you know, they, they just all of them sang. It's a bit like, like the band, really. They're all such brilliant singers; they could just use their different textural sounds and voices for for whatever song suited them. Yeah. And also, you've got that beautiful electrical electric harpsichord sound, and uh, it, it's just I thought it was gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. Uh, they, they had great difficulty sourcing an electric harpsichord because I I, I talked to uh, Bart, who's the who's the bass. <laughs> bass player and kind of kind of musical director i think um and then he said that so much of this is about just finding the instruments and so many of the instruments that are on beatles records are only there because they happened to be around abbey road at the time they were there you know they just said what does this do what sound does this make oh this looks like fun and you know these are often instruments that Within two years, we're kind of obsolete because, you know, yeah. mel- mellotrons or, or synthesizers kind of took over. And if you go looking for an electric harpsichord in the year 2019, it's not easy to find. And also, not, 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 uh, and, and also you have to find two because if you said if you get one, you can guarantee it'll break or you know, it'll yeah. need a new part, or it'll go out of tune, or something. So they have to get two. So this is the you know, this is a it's an amazing assembly of gear that they've got in order to do this performance. Uh, but they that you know they get into the medley, and of course, what I didn't realise until recently was that certain parts of the medley were actually done kind of live by the Beatles. They did actually play. I think Mean Mr. Mustard and Polythene Pam, they actually performed those in the studio. You know, they, they, they did that as a, as a deliberate segue, you know, so they can, they, it, it, it's relatively easy for the analogs to be able to do this. I do, although I don't do, know if you noticed that um, when it gets to Polythene Pam, which kind of starts with those sort of, you know, Pete Townsend type, you know, acoustic guitar chords uh 
only one of the guitarists could play the first lot, the first three, because the other guitarist was having a, an acoustic guitar handed to him That's by right. a roadie at that absolute second because yeah. he he just finished playing an electric or something, so that he could join him on the second lot of uh, of three chords. It was fantastically slick. All those all those little bits of business. I you know I never get over this. You know, I watch. thought the thing that struck me about the thing that struck me about Polythene Pam was that you know these are Dutch guys, you know, absolutely enthralled to to everything about the Beatles, including their accents, you know, and they even replicate. If you listen to Polythene Pam, there was a bit at the end. He goes, "Oh, look out!" When yeah. Corey goes into bathroom window. Yeah. But before that, if I remember rightly, he says you can hear John Lennon's voice saying, "Well, listen to that, Mal," and uh, you can actually hear it on the record. And he did it. <laughs> he actually he actually went up to the microphone and just went, "Well, listen to that." Mal, you know, and I thought that really is going the extra mile. That's fantastic. Oh, I missed that. So I missed yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Next, Lovely. next but, time but, I'll have to catch up on that. Of course, that's the beauty of going to see yeah. the if you go and see the analogs more than once, you'll get the same thing. Presumably, exactly. So, I know there's something we were saying that to each other before. Moment, there's something very comforting about going to a show where you know exactly what you're going to you're going to hear. You know, there's no there's no chance they're going to miss out one of the songs you that you, you you've, really, you've come for. You know, there's absolutely no question about it. It's just again like classical music. This is this is it's the sequence you're getting. You know, but the, I thought the medley was astonishing. And again, it's I I I, I find it, it's going to sound a bit pathetic. I find it very moving because I don't. No, I've, I've not really know if, if if anybody had given any indication that they were leaving the group at that point. John Lennon didn't leave till about three weeks after the recording. Must have, they must have felt it in the air, a because they're just you know this tremendous last kind of collaborative flourish, and b this huge kind of build to the to to the summit, isn't it? It's the last it's the last push to the top. And the effort that they put into that thing, when I mean, the medley is absolutely breathtaking, you know, they came then the idea already arrived uh, with McCoy because they had all those bits left over, didn't they? There's bits from the White Album, there's bits from I think from Rishi Cash, just odd little fragments of songs. And they suddenly thought if we combine them, it might work. And I well, think that's wonderful, building up to a song called The End. I mean, it's 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 very moving, I think. The thing that they, I can't get over is that they did originally plan having the medley on the first side. <laughs> can't. Can't imagine. Really? Yeah, they did talk about it. They, you know, but then they eventually decided no, it's 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 got to go towards the end, and uh, and so, you know, you never know how much that sense of finality was there at the time, or whether it's just something that we've invested. You know, we've invested so much time listening to it that that's the way it strikes us now. It, may it not seems more than a coincidence. Yeah, I agree with you because, you know, for them, you know, when you read about them making records, they just went in that morning, they wrote a song, they recorded it often. I mean, t- at least two of their songs uh, were, were written in the studio. Um, and, uh, you know, Baby, You're a Rich Man and I think uh, uh, Hey Bulldog were written in the studio that morning when they arrived. There wasn't a song. And by the end of the day, they'd not only written and arranged it, but they'd recorded it and finished it. I mean, you know, and so the next day they got on to something else and kind of forgotten about it. So we tend to just put far too much effort into imagining what it all represented. So then, they, you know, they, they're coming towards the end. You've got, you've got Golden Slumbers and it's, you're kind of, 
you're home at that point, aren't you, really? <laughs> well, this is funny because just before you went on, we were talking to Mark Lewison and uh, at the side of the stage there, and he said, don't go at the end, by the way, it was a little surprise. You and I got ourselves rather excited about what a little surprise could be. We, we'd somehow just arrived at the idea that Paul McCartney, <laughs> who, let's be honest, only lives two or 300 yards away <laughs> in, in Cavendish <laughs> Avenue, Paul McCartney was going to turn up and play Her, Her Majesty, which, of course, would have been ridiculous and ruined the, 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 the recording because it well, actually it wouldn't recording it would be wonderful but um you know he he, he didn't uh, they played the, 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 the and then had uh, their um their surprise uh, little uh, encores which is that they as they said most of the beatles records were actually made in studio two which is across the corridor and so they said let's all go across the corridor to studio two and we'll do some more beatles songs so it's just the perfect encore and of course this being an impeccably behaved dutch largely dutch audience you know everybody you know just filed across the corridor didn't they into the other place well- You've got to admit, there's something about the Dutch. I mean, I've never met a Dutch person I didn't like. It's a bit like the Irish. They're, they're just so likeable. They're so warm and so uncynical and so optimistic. And uh, it really seated the whole event. It seated the album. It was, you know, it seated the people on stage. They were all, it was a very Dutch experience. Polite, soft at the edges, humorous, good-natured, you know. And as you say, we were told to troop in Studio Two. Off we trooped, and then they came back down and uh, said they were going to play. I think they played five songs. I can only remember four of them actually. But there was really interesting to see what they played because if you're a kind of deep end Beatles aficionado, which uh, there can't be any deeper end people than them, what do you choose? What are the ones that you think are absolutely extraordinary and probably a little uh, uncelebrated? And the first one they played was "I Call Your Name." Which was uh, we thought was the B. I think it is the B side of Twist and Shout. No, I think it was I don't think it's no, I, I subsequently I looked this up when I got home. It's actually on the Long Tall Sally EP. It's not on the Twist and Shout EP. Uh, oh right, it's not. No, it was it was covered by uh, I think Billy J. Craper and the Dakotas or something, but only on the B side. Yeah, he of covered it. Yeah. Uh, and subsequently, yeah, Ma- Mama Cass. Or the Mamas and Papas did it as well. But anyway, it was fantastic to hear it. And then they did Norwegian oh, Wood, didn't they? Uh, Norwegian Wood, that was... Yes. They did Norwegian Wood. They did She and Said, She, she said, said, She Said. She said. Uh, and, they f- and then they did a further song, and I've forgotten what the fourth one was. But the fifth Taxman. one... Taxman. Oh, there you go, Taxman, of course. Yeah. And then the fifth one, go and tell everybody what was the fifth one. Well, that was pretty because they built up to that and sort of saying how, you know, two of the members of the group were abroad and they could immediately, you kind of, uh, you know, old bores like us stumbled it. But it was Ballad of John and Yoko. And of course, that is, again, I think a really significant song that John Lennon, uh, you know, you think this happened, I'm pretty sure, two days after one of the worst arguments they'd had about the possible arrival of Alan Klein and their disagreements about the management of the Beatles and the Beatles affairs. And Lennon and McCartney had massively fallen out over this. John Lennon then rang him up, I think, two days later and said, look i've got this song that i've written um you know it's going to come out as the beatles this is before the plastic ono band it's going to be on the apple label it's a beatles record it's going to be a single um it's going to be about my relationship with the girl who let's be honest hasn't been you know that easy to accommodate into the uh, quite thin uh, fabric of the beatles on occasions and it's called the ballad of john and yoko and mccartney went in there 
and he played the bass and drums, didn't he? And he played, I think it was a piano part, and did all the backing vocals, and John Lennon just did the guitars and the vocals. And they recorded on that very square of uh, parquet flooring that they were that they were performing it on and you could see the thrill that's what another thing i loved about those guys was they're just so they, they're just they were kind of amateurs you know they're not pros they're not they're not bored of it they're not above it all they're not aloof you know they're 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 absolutely thrilled to be performing songs that they adore to that extent and uh, and in this case performing them in the very place they were recorded amazing so there you are that was our that was our Sunday evening out uh, at Abbey Road uh, with the analogues. So, as we said, we're uh, making a film and uh, and recording a, a live album uh, there, which will be coming out, I suppose, in September or something like that this year, which is the, of course, the fiftieth anniversary uh, of Abbey Road. Uh, we'll be back with you with a normal word in your ear in a few weeks time where we got we got Will Birch talking about Nick Lowe and uh, what else we got Mark we've got uh, we've got we've got that that fantastic book about Crosby Stills Nash uh, and Young haven't we yes yeah yeah, yeah. by Peter Doggett I think, by Peter Doggett of course absolutely superb and and further word in your ears coming up uh, later in the year coming your way uh, stay tuned this podcast was brought to you by The Word <laughs> catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 